We're going to be studying in Ezra tonight and doing an overview of this book. We'll be studying this book in Bible class on Sunday mornings, but I thought it would be good for us to to do an overview of it before we dive deep into our study in Ezra. So as we're going through the story and understanding all that's in there, I want you to to be thinking about all the applications that could possibly be made, even though I'm going to try to focus in on what I think is the main application of the book. Uh, There's a lot that could be drawn from this text as we study it together. Um, we've gone through Jeremiah, we've gone through Ezekiel, we're going through Daniel, and we've been spending a lot of time thinking about how these people have sinned and how they have uh, been punished by God and brought into exile uh, and captivity under the Babylonians for these 70 years. And now we get to the book of Ezra and we start to see what's going to happen over the next 100 years after the return of the Israelites. If we were to take this book and just look at it from a very big picture point of view, we would see that uh, the first six chapters are about the initial exiles who returned under Zerubbabel and and Jeshua. And they are rebuilding the temple and, and constructing it initially. And that's the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. And then chapters 7 through 10... Uh, is when we finally get to Ezra coming and he comes and he beautifies the temple and he teaches the people the law of God. So that's that's the 10,000 foot view of what the book of Ezra is all about. The return of the people and constructing the temple and then the return of Ezra and, and some people with him to beautify the temple and to teach the, the temple. So that's kind of the outline of the main events that are going on in the, the storyline of Ezra. But there's some topics that I think are really important. So we're not really going to base that, base the way that our story is going to go off of that. But more so the topic of what is God doing in this story. Uh, And as we study this together, what we're going to see is God is restoring His temple. He is restoring His Word. And He is restoring His people. This is all about restoration. This is all about the restoration process that God has in mind. What we have in this book is a really fascinating picture of restoration of God's people from death to life. Bringing them from captivity to some form of freedom, uh, even though they are still under some oppression. And trying to rebuild their hearts to love God and to do God's will again. Okay, so it's about God restoring His temple, God restoring His Word, and God restoring His people. Let's start off reading the first four verses of Ezra chapter 1 and see how God is restoring His temple. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So here we see a decree coming from Cyrus for all the people who serve God to return back to Jerusalem. And, and as we read that, we need to understand the weight of this. What, what, what this is telling us is that God is willing to let His people return after sending them away to exile in 70 years. Now we've studied books like Ezekiel and Jeremiah that have outlined the awful sin of God's people. I mean, these people have killed their children and worshipped to false gods. They have killed God's prophets. They have brought idols into the temple and worshipped idols in the place where God's name was supposed to dwell. And for that, God has punished them and brought them into captivity for 70 years. And now we see God willing to bring His people back into Jerusalem. If you've been studying with us, you've been seeing that God is promising to do this very act, to bring His people back into the promised land. And this is exactly what He begins to do by the hands of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, if you've studied the Bible for very long, you probably have learned about Cyrus or heard about Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus is an interesting character because he's first talked about 200 years prior to this day. God foretold and called by name Cyrus as being the one who he would anoint to set his people free from captivity and allow them to return to Jerusalem. And the prophet Isaiah in the 44th and 45th chapter, he calls Cyrus by name and says, you are going to do this for me. And now we see that Cyrus himself is pointing out that the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Here's the king over all of the earth at the time. And he is saying, God in heaven above has charged me to do this task. Recognizing God is the one who has brought him all the victory and all the success. God has acted here to bring about a great shift among the kingdoms of men so that His people can return back to their country and rebuild what God Himself has torn down. Pretty amazing event in history when you say that God was willing and able to do all of this to bring this event about. And so all the people are going to return now to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild the temple. And at first, this seems awesome, right? You just picture everybody celebrating as they go up to the mountain of Jerusalem. But think about this for a second. What are they going to? What are they returning to? They've spent 70 years building a life in Babylon or wherever they've sojourned. And now they're going to pack up everything they own. And they're going to sojourn five months travel, however long it is, to get to Jerusalem. And what are they going to find there? Devastation. Rocks that are burned up and wood that's burned up. Imagine packing up everything you own, moving your family to a place that is destroyed with a mission of rebuilding this place. I mean, we have to clear out all the debris just in order to establish anything, just to build anything. 
This is a time when there are no bulldozers, there are no cranes. I mean, moving this stuff would be really hard work. It would take years of time just to clear out enough room in order to build. Why would anybody want to do that? Verse 5 of chapter 1 says that then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. We see here God stirring the people up. God uh, working with the people, helping the people to see what He has planned for them, that, that He is desiring them to return back to rebuild the temple, that He would, would be with them again, and that they would be His people, and that He would be their God. All that messianic language we read about earlier in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and, and Isaiah and all over the place, they are getting stirred up by that, and they are realizing this is the place that distinguishes us as God's people. The temple is is not just any temple. This is the place where the God of heaven, who rules the kingdoms of men and sets things in order the way He so fits to do things, has decided to dwell with a special group of people who He has called His own. And this stirs the people up and and makes the people desire to come back into Jerusalem that God might fulfill His promises and rebuild the nation of Israel and restore the temple through their hands. So the people come back and and Zerubbabel and Jeshua are working with the people to build uh, the foundation. And after two years, they get a foundation laid. But... There's great rejoicing and also discouragement. (laughs) They have a couple setbacks at this time. Everybody's excited because the temple foundation has been established, but there's also some who remember how great the last temple was. These are the older folks who had been there before, and they knew the glory of Solomon's temple. And they're seeing this foundation, and they're just weeping and wailing over the inferiority of this temple foundation compared to what Solomon and all the glory had, had erected. And another setback also happens. About this time, there's adversaries that start to come in and saying, hey, can we help you build? Notice how I said they're adversaries. It seems like, oh, they're wanting to help. But no, they're really not. These adversaries are people who desire to worship the God of heaven their way. These are people who have been worshiping the God of heaven in their own way. They've set up their own idolatrous system of worshiping Yahweh. And now they're wanting to come down to where the temple is being built and have some influence on how the temple is going to be built. And and Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the people won't stand for that. They recognize that God is going to hold this people to a standard of holiness and purity that cannot be compromised like they did in the past. They realize that that by compromising and worshiping the idols and allowing the idolatrous stuff in, they ended up in captivity and destruction just 70 years prior. They can't do that again. No way. Well, the people who were adversaries began to harass them. Upset because they couldn't get their way and have God the way they want God and have the temple the way they want it. God's people stand firm against the apostasy. 
but they become paralyzed by fear. The temple foundation lays dormant for 16 years, and they do nothing for fear of the people that are around them. And finally, it takes God's action again. God sends the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to stir up the people again to get back to work. And Haggai rebukes the people in his prophecy saying that they're building their own houses while God's house remains unbuilt. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua again begin to rebuild the temple. And again, the pressures from the political people around them start to say, What are you doing? Why are you doing that? You can't do that. What's your name? We're going to tell your name to the king. But they keep working. And they keep working. And they send their names and they send what they're doing to the king. And they say, Cyrus himself made the decree that we're supposed to build this temple. And now there's a different king, Darius, who's in control. And he goes and he looks at the records and he finds, yeah, Cyrus had decreed this. And he tells the adversaries, leave them alone. In fact, pay to have this temple built. You are now going to be a, a supporter of this cause. And so the temple gets built. Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the people, they all build the temple. And, and they uh, 24 years after the initial return in 515 B.C., the temple is completed. And they have a huge celebration. And people come from all over to worship God according to the law of Moses, the way God originally desired for it to be done. Now they're going to worship God as they were supposed to be doing it after the pattern that Moses Moses had established. When we get to chapter 7, we fast forward. We go from the reign of Darius to the reign of Artaxerxes, which is about 50 years later. And we read about Ezra. Hey, the guy that the book is named after comes in in chapter 7. And Ezra is being commissioned by Artaxerxes to go and he takes with him a a mountain of gold, a mountain of silver and, and animals and he's supposed to bring all of this to Jerusalem to offer up worship to God and to beautify the temple. It doesn't really tell us in the text why he's doing that. Artaxerxes is doing that. It doesn't, doesn't come out with that initially. But at the end, after Ezra and his people return, we see uh, what, what is said by Ezra. He says in verse 27 of chapter 7, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. The picture we get is that Ezra came before the king and his counselors and somehow made petition and somehow he was granted favor. And and Ezra ascribes the success of all this to the Lord. The Lord has provided this. And that's what we've seen throughout this book. God has been working in the reign of Cyrus. God has been working in the reign of Darius. And now God is working in the reign of Artaxerxes to build his temple. To beautify. God is restoring His temple. 
You see the, the powerful working of God. Uh, we saw him in, in Nebuchadnezzar's time and Daniel uh, accomplishing the, the conquering of his people, but also preserving his people on some level. And now we see Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes building the people up by building the temple and having it beautified. What an interesting idea that God would work so hard to build this temple. But what is the temple? It's the place where the people can meet God and where God can meet the people, where there can now be a relationship. So it makes sense for this to be the first thing that God wants to have restored. In Ezekiel, His glory left the temple and now presumably His glory will return because the temple is now constructed again. It was destroyed and it is back. Interestingly, we don't see the temple, the glory of the Lord entering the temple at this time, but the temple is there nonetheless. Although that makes up the majority of this book, I don't think this book is really so much about that. The, the restoration of the temple was a big deal, and it's, it's important. But as we look at the second half of Ezra, we start to see that there's more that God is restoring than just the temple. We see that God, as, as Ezra is brought to Israel, to Jerusalem, God is working to restore more than just the temple. He's actually also working to restore His Word. Listen to the description of Ezra in Ezra chapter 7 verse 6. It says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Isn't that an interesting description that Ezra is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses? Now, scribes, what are scribes? Well, these are the guys who make copies of the law of Moses and the law of God. They're the ones who have been writing it and they've they've learned the art of, of creating these scrolls for the people to learn. And he is a skilled scribe and he is now going to Jerusalem. Coincidence? (laughs) That it is a scribe that's bringing all this gold and everything to Jerusalem. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We see that Ezra is the one who is, who is called to come back to Jerusalem because he has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do and to teach his statutes in all of Israel. This is all about bringing the word of God back to the people that they might understand the word of God. It, it turns out whenever we get to the New Testament, we have scribes, we have Pharisees, we have Sadducees. And these are all because of what Ezra's going to do. As he comes in and teaches the Word, there's all these schools and sects that start to pop up of people trying to teach the Word and understand the Word more. This is a complete change from the prophets before that now there is a scribe and there is a teacher who's coming in specifically for this purpose to teach the Word and to make sure that the Word of the Lord is on the minds and the hearts of the people. But what's most fascinating to me is in chapter 7 and verse 26. In chapter 7 verse 26, we see that there's more that's going on. It says, Whoever will not obey the law of your God... This is Artaxerxes speaking to Ezra. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, 
Let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. As Ezra goes to teach in Jerusalem, he's going to be spreading the word of God to all these surrounding nations and that they are all told to obey the word of the Lord, the word of God, as though it is equal to the word of the king. The word of God is being exalted in the nations around Jerusalem. It is spreading that people know and understand who God is on some level and are able to see the glory of God as the word goes out to all these nations. In fact, it turns out in chapter 8 verse 36 that those who were once adversaries who were against this movement and what uh, Ezra was coming to do ended up getting on the same side and ended up helping and assisting. And and our exerces allows for many blessings to fall on God's people as a result of this. So God restores the temple and, and He also restores His Word. But for what purpose? What is He seeking in all of this? Well, that's the third point. He's trying to restore His people. The restoration of the temple, the restoration of His Word is all moving toward this ultimate mission, this ultimate goal that God has to have a people for His own possession. A treasured possession. That's what God's after. That's what God wants. And when Ezra begins to arrive and start teaching, we read in chapter 9, let's read the first four verses. It says, after these things had been done, after Ezra had come and, and built the temple, uh, or beautified the temple, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness... The hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening Sacrifice. With the Word of God being taught by Ezra, clearly explained by Ezra, we see a response from the people. The people come up to Ezra and they tell him what they have done. That they have, uh, even though they rejected the nations initially and didn't allow idolatry to be a part of the temple, they have allowed idolatrous relationships in their homes. They brought them into their own families and they're teaching their children and raising up the next generation of Israelites to pursue the same idolatry they had done in the past that led to their destruction. We see the people, and notice how it's even the leaders 
being confronted by the truth of God's Word, being cut to the heart and exposing their own sins before Ezra so he could help them navigate how they're supposed to respond. And in response, Ezra tears his garment and he, imagine pulling out his hair, pulling out his beard. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. And he sits appalled till the evening sacrifice. And let's, let's read what happens next. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. This book ends with a heart-wrenching scene. As the rest of this chapter describes God's people separating from their wives and their children in order to turn back to God. Now, notice... They didn't just mourn for their sins. And they didn't even go to Ezra and ask him, what do we need to do here? Why are you sitting here doing nothing? You need to tell us what to do. They didn't do that. They made a decision. They decided to do something drastic in order to avoid God's wrath that they had seen poured out on their ancestors And in order to show the appreciation that they had for what God had done, He had brought them back from captivity and given them great blessings that they didn't deserve. So they decided to put away their wives and their children who they had by those wives and separate from them. What a story. We see God restoring this people to have a different kind of mind, a different kind of heart than the people in the past. He restored the temple, He restored His Word, and now He is using His Word and His temple to help the people understand He still loves them. He still cares for them and He still wants them to love Him back. And here we see they're, they're realizing it. A light bulb is going off in their head and they're seeing how worthy God is of this sacrifice and this change. Why is this recorded for us? Well, there's a lot of reasons and there's a lot of applications in this book, but let's try to narrow this down to thinking about the restoration that God is doing. This story gives us a very clear image of God's restoration process. That that God is desiring to rebuild a temple to establish a way for God to meet the people. That He is keeping His Word preserved that the people might see it, that the people might understand it, and that they might change and make a, a heart change to turn to God. But this is the way God's always worked. Think about 
back in Moses, uh, in the time of Joshua, in the time of David, in the time of Hezekiah, in the time of Josiah, over and over again, God is working to restore the hearts of His people. He's trying to get them to see, trying to get them to understand and to learn that He loves them and that He wants them to obey and receive His blessings. He sends prophet after prophet to try to accomplish this. And finally, we see some level of restoration in the hearts of the people. But this just shows us God just wants to be with His people. It doesn't matter what time period we live in. God wants to have His own people who, who love Him, who He loves, and who are being molded to be more and more like Him. That's what this is all about. The restoration is all about developing and growing the treasure possession on the earth. And He did that in the New Testament. Why is this recorded for us? Well, it helps us to see whenever we get to the New Testament, when we get to the book of Acts. What do we see in chapter 3 of Acts? Peter is preaching and he's telling the people to repent, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Here we are in the New Testament and God's pointing to this restoration and this refreshing and this repentance and saying, God wants it still. God wants a people who realize that they were once dead and that that now God has made a way for them to be alive, to be changed in their heart and their minds. And this helps us understand how all of this applies to us. How can we be restored? How can we go from being destitute, from being desolate, from being dead in our sins to being restored in a relationship with God that that glorifies God among all the nations that are around us? Well, this picture that he paints for us is of the people of Israel and what they do as they respond. The words in chapter 10 in verse 2 and 3 are the most important words of the book. He says, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. The people of God are here recognizing they've broken faith. They have separated themselves from God and now they need to be on the right track. But notice that they didn't have to be told what to do here. Ezra did not have to tell his people, this is what you must do. You must separate from all these wives, even if they have children, and you must do it in this way on this time. And we don't look in the Old Testament and see, as Deuteronomy 7 says, don't marry these foreign women and and all the idolatries that are come with that. We don't see God revealing the reason is uh, that, that... Whenever you do that, you're going to have to be separated from them and you're going to have to let them go. He doesn't ever say that. He never says that's what you were supposed to do if you marry these women. 
But here are these people, and they're looking at what they've done, and they're realizing how, how awful what, it, what they've done is, and they're making the decision on their own that this thing that we have done is wrong. This is the very act that got our ancestors destroyed. How could we do this again? The only solution they come up with is to cut off their wives and their children. Think about that. That's what true repentance looks like. True repentance is a willingness to pursue holiness for the Lord out of a love for Him. Why did they respond this way? Why did they desire to put away their wives? Was it because they didn't like their wives and their children and they wanted to get rid of them? Maybe some of them felt that way. I don't know. But probably not for the most part. They wanted to be satisfied with God. And they wanted God to be satisfied with them. And they wanted that more than they wanted their wives and their children. Think about this. What would it be like to separate from a wife and children that you love? Imagine doing this. Imagine letting letting them go in order to serve God, in order to be found faithful with God. Imagine the pain and the suffering and the heartache that would be involved in that. How devastating that would be. God didn't tell him to do it. He just let his word speak for itself saying, don't do this. And now they knew what they had to do to repent and to change. What does this mean for us? We need to stop and consider whether we've truly repented. Maybe nobody's told me that this is wrong. Maybe nobody's told me I need to stop doing this or that. Maybe I study the Word and I see that God's not really happy with how this has been. I have to make the cut. Like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to be willing to cut off our hand. It's better to to go into heaven without a hand than it is to, to be cast into hell. And here they're cutting off their wives and their children in order to pursue God and to be satisfied in him. So what would it look like for us to do this? We have to ask ourselves the question, what would God want my life to look like? What would God want my marriage to look like? What would God want my demeanor to look like as I live out my life, as I go to school, to work uh, with friends? What would God want my lifestyle to be like? As I spend my time pursuing all these things, what would God really want me to be doing? And whenever I see that what I'm doing isn't what God would want me to do, we have to make the change that these people make. These are drastic changes that show a truly repentant heart. Are we willing to do that? 
This is an amazing story. It tells us about a God who still loves His exiled people even though they don't deserve it. We see that that God gives us a story of His grace, His willingness to act on behalf of His people to bring about their restoration, to bring about the relationship that He wants, to help them know how to be more like Him, how to be pleasing to Him, how to be with Him in heaven for all eternity. He's helping His people along the way. That's what His Word does, and that's what the relationship does that we have with God. We all must die and be raised to walk in newness of life. We all must be restored to be like Christ. We have a mediator, a temple that we can go to to receive forgiveness of our sins, to have all of our sins blotted out, to be forgiven, and to live a life pleasing to God as we wait for the final restoration to take place. When God is, is allowing us to enter into the city that He has made, a city made without hands where we get to live with Him for all eternity. Have you made that decision in your heart and in your mind to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? And if repentance has not ha- happened in your heart, consider these words of God's desire for restoration. If you know what you need to do, please don't delay. Please come forward as we...